Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. Hello. For this episode of the MicroSamplify podcast, we are speaking with toxicologist Dr. Christophe Stove, a researcher at Ghent University in Belgium. In addition to conducting research, Professor Dr. Stove also teaches courses at the university and collaborates on public service projects focused primarily on forensic toxicology. Dr. Stove and the research team at Ghent University's Laboratory of Toxicology have recently published several study papers describing their investigations of the direct alcohol biomarker PETH. A co-author of some of those papers is Dr. Kathleen van Utvanga, who also joins us today. She completed her PhD in the Laboratory of Analytical Chemistry at the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Ghent University, followed by a postdoc in the same laboratory. Since October 2014, she has been working alongside Dr. Stove as a postdoctoral fellow in the Laboratory of Toxicology. Hello, Dr. Stove and Dr. Van Utfanga. Welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast from Neoterics. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us about your work at Ghent University. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure uh, to be here with you. Dr. Stove, I'll direct my first question to you. The list of courses you teach at University of Ghent, toxicology, bioanalytics and drug development, and chemical criminalistics reveals an interesting breadth of knowledge and interests. Can you tell us a little more about yourself in terms of what drew you to this field and what aspects of your work excite you the most? Yeah, actually, I'm a pharmacist as a background, um, but I did my PhD and first postdoc in cell biology and molecular biology uh, to then finally embark upon uh, bioanalysis again in a second postdoc before then eventually getting a position here at the lab of toxicology at uh, Ghent University. So this has made that I have a rather uh, broad, uh, interesting, uh, broad interest field, uh, which is also reflected in the research that we are doing in the lab. Uh, which um, covers what I would call applied pharmacology, uh, which covers the setup and development of bioassays, to um, development of new assays uh, in the context of uh, bioanalysis, uh, where I have a special focus and uh, interest for uh, microsampling. You have been using microsampling for quite some time, even before you began using the Mitra device to apply volumetric absorptive microsampling. How and why did you first become interested in microsampling for your research studies? It dates back from something like 2010, uh, when I was still a postdoc, and at that time I supervised a PhD student, and uh, she worked on a compound uh, which is called uh, GHB, um, gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, which is of uh, interest in forensic toxicology because that's the field we are working in. And at some point, we started to work on 
small blood samples, 50 microliter blood samples. And at a given point in time, we thought, okay, if we can work in 50 microliter blood samples, can't we also work on 50 microliter dried blood samples? And after that uh, came the application of, uh, filter, of blood on filter paper. And um, ever since, uh, we have been working on microsampling. So it wasn't something that was really planned. We sort of stumbled uh, into this by accident. <laughs> I see. You and Dr. Van Utfanga recently collaborated on a couple of published papers describing your work on PETH as a direct biomarker of alcohol intake. Dr. Utfanga, can you tell me why PETH is a good biomarker for determining alcohol intake and how remote specimen collection with Mitra devices and microsampling help you to track it? Yes. Uh, first of all, PETH is actually the abbreviation for uh, the alcohol bio biomarker phosphatidyl ethanol. And in the broad spectrum of alcohol biomarkers, PET is an outstanding one for two reasons. It is solely formed when ethanol is present in someone's blood. So when there is no ethanol, there will be no PET. And second, there are no reports yet uh, of false positive or false negative results when monitoring PETs. So, therefore, we promote the use of remote specimen collection among the clinical uh, pathologists and healthcare workers we collaborate with uh, because of the ease of use, the fact that sample collection can be done on the spot, and because drying of the blood immediately after sample collection protects the sample from instabilities. Moreover, the samples can then also easily be sent via regular mail. So there are several advantages of using the devices. Dr. Stove, your recent PET studies have been a collaborative effort with the laboratory research team at the National Institute of Criminalistics and Criminology, or the NICC. Can you explain what your two labs are trying to achieve together from the lab perspective in terms of methodology and from a criminology perspective in terms of how your work can be applied in the world? So both our labs are working in the field of uh, forensic uh, toxicology and uh, historically we have had several collaborations uh, between our labs. Uh, in the context of uh, PATH, uh, we have already uh, collaborated uh, to work on the validity of PETH as an alcohol marker uh, using conventional dried blood spots. And in the framework of that exploratory work, we already made a comparison of the usefulness of PETH um, and compared that to more established alcohol biomarkers uh, such as ethylglucuronide and CDT. CDT is uh, in Belgium, but uh, also worldwide, still one of the most used indirect uh, biomarkers but it has quite uh, quite some uh, drawbacks. And uh, one of those drawbacks is that if it's positive, if CDT is uh, quite high, it is uh, reflecting in many instances um, uh, chronic and excessive drinking. Uh, but uh, if it's um, not uh, elevated, it doesn't say anything and definitely can't be used uh, to demonstrate uh, abstinence. And uh, because of uh, uh, that, both our lab's missions are actually the same. Uh, we aim at providing high-quality services to interested parties. In many instances, uh, this could be the Department of, uh, of Justice. Also, um, combining that with what I could um, uh, describe as 
education about these uh, biomarkers, uh, meaning uh, that uh, we also try to make sure that the ones that uh, need to take care of the judicial aspects in, for instance, uh, driving and drinking, that they are also aware of the possibilities of uh, alcohol biomarkers. And in addition, um, collaborating on uh, getting this routine method validated and uh, really demonstrated the comparability and transferability of the methods uh, brings an added value to the reliability of the methods that are running in our uh, labs, both here at Ghent University and at the NICC. Dr. Van Utfanga, how portable or transferable is your microsampling method for PET studies? And how easy will it be for other labs to replicate around the world? For labs who have basic skills in running quantitative mass spectrometry methods, the method should be easily to implement and to copy. In essence, we combine a simplest aqueous extraction of the Mitra devices combined with a liquid-liquid extraction of the PET from the aqueous phase. Next, the PET from the extract is measured using mass spectrometry. So we run here in our lab with manual sample cleanup up to 120 samples a day. But the method should also be transferred using robotization and then in a high throughput lab it should also be useful. In the manuscript describing the method, we tried to be as complete as possible. So we also described the problems we ran into upon validation of the method, and we explicitly explain the rationale why we do certain things in a certain way. This should save other researchers a pile of work upon validation of their own methods. In addition, as already mentioned by Professor Stove, we performed an extensive method comparison with one of our peers. This proved already transferability of the method, also exposed the Achilles heel of the method, namely standardization and calibration of the me measurements. That is really a point of attention. Your work in detecting alcohol and substance use or overuse is so important in light of statistics that tell us that approximately 3 million people around the globe die every year as a result of alcohol abuse. That is roughly one in 20 alcohol-related deaths worldwide. Your research team also studies another substance of abuse that leads to nearly 600,000 deaths per year worldwide, and that is opioids. Can you tell us about your opioid studies? Yeah, indeed, we're also working on uh, opioids. Um, and as already mentioned, uh, we have two main research lines in our lab, one involving bioanalysis, which includes the microsampling, the other implying bioassays. And actually, these opioid studies link to the bioassay uh, research line uh, of the lab. In these assays, uh, we use living cells to search for the activity of a certain group of compounds. And we have, for instance, done that for cannabinoids, uh, but also for uh, opioids. And the assay, which employs living cells and uh, is luminescence-based, can actually be used in the lab as a screening tool to find out what biological samples contain an opioid. And this can be irrespective of the identity um, of the opioid. In a sense, it comes down to the fact that we can identify any known 
or any unknown, any existing or any future opioids in a biological uh, sample. These uh, bioassays uh, can be used for screening purpose, like I said, but uh, now we also routinely use these uh, to assess the activity of the newest uh, opioids and that are on the illicit market or that are anticipated uh, to enter the illicit uh, drug market. And like that, we can also help uh, regulators to anticipate on what compounds uh, may soon be there. Hmm. As researchers, you have been innovators in the area of remote blood collection and have shown tremendous success with VAMS in the field. Your study volunteers have an impressive success rate of submitting high quality blood samples to your lab. In fact, more than 500 volunteers, I believe, recently filled out a questionnaire about their experiences with finger prick blood collection. Are you willing to share the secret to your success with remote blood collection and how you have worked with your study subjects to achieve this? Indeed, we've uh, set up a quite large study in which uh, people that were untrained uh, have uh, performed um, uh, microsampling using uh, Demetra uh, devices, and the outcome of this study was, was quite successful. And this uh, success um, actually, we think, depends on a combination uh, of uh, factors. Uh, first, um, we needed something that was uh, easily applicable uh, for home sampling, and we did think that um, Mitra and that the volumetric absorptive microsampling was suitable uh, for that. Uh, second, uh, we paid quite some attention to instruct our volunteers uh, quite well. This was via both a video that was accessible, uh, but also via a, a leaflet and uh, via targeted uh, emails trying not to overload them with information, but really um, making sure that uh, they got the information that was important. And then uh, also um, very important was that we tried to uh, motivate the uh, participants. We sort of made them uh, responsible for their results. Uh, they were interested in um, uh, knowing something about their alcohol marker. This was also about uh, PATH. And in a sense, it came down to the fact that we sort of told them you want uh, your result, you're interested in your results, so you better make sure that the sample that you provide us with is correct. And actually that um, eventually seems to work. Interesting, so you made them the agents of their own, sort of like a scientist, the agents of their own results. Yep, it sort of came down to that. Excellent. I'd like to focus on the coronavirus pandemic for a moment, since at the time of this interview, we are all experiencing a terrible spike in cases. Has COVID-19 sparked keener interest in remote blood collection among your colleagues and your collaborators? And do you foresee Europeans adopting remote blood collection for future studies in sort of a, a post-COVID-19 world? Yes, we are aware of uh, studies, uh, for instance, in the in the Netherlands, uh, where already microsampling is being applied for therapeutic drug monitoring of uh, immunosuppressants, and they had already a smaller project running where uh, patients could send in their samples via regular mail, and with the onset of uh, COVID-19, actually they saw an increased interest of patients uh, to perform home sampling and send their samples to the hospital. And I think that's uh, something that may uh, be uh, 
maintained in, in future because once someone is convinced of the advantages uh, that's accompanied with this home sampling and with the ease of use, um, that's uh, something that really can, uh, can remain uh, there. This is also something that came out of the questionnaire that we performed in the um, framework of our large scale uh, where we actually uh, asked our participants um, whether uh, they would find it acceptable to consider a monthly finger prick sampling at home, for instance, in the follow-up of a uh, drug concentration, and the vast majority did say that they would consider this acceptable. And importantly, those were participants that had already done the finger prick, so they knew what was associated with it, they knew what a finger prick um, yeah, actually uh, meant. Excellent. Do you and your colleagues have any new projects with microsampling planned moving forward? Microsampling uh, remains an important part of um, many projects that we have uh, running uh, in the lab, uh, both using conventional dried blood spots and uh, Mitra uh, devices. Uh, we have several projects uh, running. We have been working on antiepileptics. Uh, currently, uh, we have a project uh, that is assessing uh, vitamin, uh, thiamine, uh, which is vitamin B1, in uh, Mitra uh, samples. And actually, in future, we hope uh, to perform a quite large-scale epidemiological study in which we want to assess the vitamin status in a larger population. This could be European, but could also be, uh, for instance, uh, in uh, developing countries uh, like in African countries. Thank you, Dr. Stove and Dr. Vanut Fanga for speaking with us about how you apply microsampling in your work at the University of Ghent. We wish you great success with your many projects and collaborations. And thanks to our audience for listening to this episode of the Microsamplify podcast, a partner to the Microsampling blog from Neoterics. <laughs>